Less than two weeks for Aussies to rescue Assange. And the bank regulator that can't count. Coming up on this week's Citizens Report. Welcome to the Citizens Report. It's the 8th of April 2022. I'm Robert Barwick and I'm joined today by Citizens Party founder and leader Craig Isherwood. Welcome, Craig. Yeah, thanks, Robbie. In this week's show, we're going to talk about an urgent mobilisation that we've initiated this week to flood the politicians in Australia with phone calls to get them to intervene in the extradition of Julian Assange, which is due on the 20th of April. And we're going to go back to the regulators, uh, the financial regulators, Craig, our favourite subject lately. Um, because we've got some excellent video footage of a hearing in, in uh, Parliament I think will amaze people. Um, first, before we begin, remember to like the show, uh, subscribe, click on the bell icon when you do to make sure you get notified of upcoming shows um, and also share it widely so we can get the message out. Also, I'd like to mention our, the, uh, the interview I talked about last week with the former Australian diplomat John Lander. Um, is there to be watched and shared. It's doing really, really well. It's getting a lot of uh, traction and feedback from around Australia and around the world, which is excellent. So if you haven't already seen that, uh, please look at it. Um, and, yeah, let's get on with the show. Yeah, it's quite a shocking interview, that one, Robbie, when you think about what's uh, what's transpiring in the world today. And it gives John Lander gives a really excellent insight into how we should really be looking at this from a sane point of view. He's an older you know, uh, diplomat, much more experienced, and, you know, he makes a lot of sense. Well, if, uh, I, I, what I've learned from John Lander is if, you, if, you, if you're committed to peace, you can achieve it. Yeah. Diplomacy is an art, yeah. and uh, what we've got is um, neoconservative governments who are not committed to peace, yeah. and we're seeing the consequence of that. And that relates to our first subject, Craig, because we're going to talk about the fact that there's less than two weeks for Aussies to rescue Assange, and Julian Assange is the guy who uh, has exposed the actual evidence behind a lot of the war agenda that we're living with, uh, with the legacy of. But let's start with this. Right now, everyone's talking about war crimes, mm. right? And they're referring to this, um, uh, the, the events in uh, Ukraine. Now, we're not going to talk about them except to say that um, a lot of what you're hearing is rubbish. There's a lot of contrary evidence. Um, but our media have picked up an agenda and run with it here. And the problem is when uh, Scott Morrison and Maurice Payne talk about uh, express out outrage at supposed Russian war crimes in Ukraine and the British government do and the American government do, um, they are the people who have locked up Julian Assange. For doing what? For leaking this video, a lot of other evidence as well, be leaked this video 12 years ago this week. It's called Collateral Murder.
fucking, once you get on, just open them up. Yeah, Roger. I, um, uh, I see your element. You got uh, about four Humvees uh, out along this. Uh, You're clear. This, uh, All right, firing. Line here, with the state line. Uh, let me know when you have it. We'll shoot. Light them all up. Come on, fire. Hey, Roger. Keep shooting. We need to move time now. Alright, we just engaged all eight individuals. Now we need to emerge. We're still firing. Roger. Got him. just watched there is two helicopter gunships mm -hmm. in Baghdad mm -hmm. shooting a group of unarmed civilians, including two Reuters journalists, and laughing about it and congratulating each other. And that's the part I want to highlight, Craig. They did it in their head with impunity. Yes. There is no sense they're doing anything wrong. And it was clearly a war crime. And until Julian Assange leaked that video, it had been covered up by the US government yeah. and the US and the Pentagon. And it's just not, as you said before, Robbie, this is only just one, one, one exactly. incident. There are many, many of these. So don't, the governments that are responsible for him rotting in Belmarsh prison, which is our government, the British government, and the United States government of President Joe Biden, do not believe a word they say about war crimes. They don't care about war crimes. What they care about is geopolitical games. Unless you get that through your thick head, we are going to be suckered into accepting their policies that perpetuate these wars. And if you already don't believe that, because you have followed this Assange um, case, then get on board because there's something we can do. Alarmingly, the reason we've, we've made this the issue today is because it's the 8th of April, so in 12 days from now, the 20th of April, at the Westminster Magistrates Court, a magistrate will issue the extradition order for Julian Assange to extradite him to the United States. Now, when she does that, or she or he, I, 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 I actually don't know if it would be a man or a woman, but anyway, when the magistrate does that, Craig, that order then goes to the Home Secretary, Priti Patel. And this is where it gets interesting, because up to that point, it's a judicial decision, and there's, you know, public protest by, in, by definition shouldn't be able to affect the judicial decision. Mm. But when it goes to Priti Patel, it's a political decision. And that means there's an opportunity for the public who are sick of our cover-ups of our war crimes and our wars 
to intervene here and get this guy freed. Now, what I'm about to tell you was informed by a, a chance meeting I had last year when I went to um, remember the, uh, uh, the first... The second big lockdown, the second lockdown in Victoria, which the third actually, but the first one of 2021, um, uh, I had booked to go to Canberra to yeah. attend the Australia, to, to do meetings about Australia Post. And um, suddenly Dan Andrews announced there's going to be a lockdown. And we had a window of opportunity uh, that if I didn't get to the airport and get up to Canberra, <laughs> I'd be stuck here in Melbourne, right? And so we paid extra money and I, I got to go and leave Melbourne to get to Canberra. That, the first day, Checking into Parliament House, which was mostly empty because of COVID restrictions, there was only me and Angela Cramp, the head of the LPO group, and this blonde-haired woman, and I recognised her, and it was Jennifer Robinson, who was Julian Assange's lawyer, Australian lawyer. And so, given the circumstances, and I've followed this very closely, I introduced myself to Jennifer Robinson, and I asked her a question that had been um, at the forefront of my mind for a while, because at that moment, because it was February, uh, 2021, Joe Biden had just been inaugurated. And until he was inaugurated, there was this um, open question, will Donald Trump pardon Julian Assange? And a lot of people were saying, will he, won't he, will he, won't he? And the, but it was a, seemed to be a live proposition. So I asked her, had there been a chance that Donald Trump may have pardoned Julian Assange? And, and Jennifer Robinson was emphatic. She said, absolutely. It all came down to the Australian government. In her view, if the Australian government had of um, advocated on Julian Assange's behalf, Donald Trump would have pardoned him. Yeah. Right? Wow. And that illustrates why we're going to announce what we're going to announce, Craig, because we have to put, we're Australians, we need to take this opportunity of the next 12 days to put excruciating pressure on the Australian government. Now, let's name the key people in the Australian government. Two former Prime Ministers, Malcolm Turnbull and Kevin Rudd, have both said this should end, and Julian Assange should not be um, uh, imprisoned anymore. Malcolm Turnbull said it before he became Prime Minister. He actually said then that Assange um, broke no Australian laws, right? So that's on the, that's on the Liberal side. Uh, Barnaby Joyce, last December, wrote this excellent article saying Assange has broken no Australian laws. He should either be charged with something in the UK, and if he's not, he should be released and brought back to Australia. That's what the Deputy Prime Minister of Australia said last December. And uh, last February, Anthony Albanese said, and he used the phrase, enough is enough. He said, it should, you know, this, this has got to end. And in fact, it's Labor Party policy, official Labor Party policy on its platform that the Assange drama should end. So what are they going to do in the next 12 days to um, communicate to Priti Patel, the Home Secretary of the United Kingdom, that she should drop that extradition order and release Julian Assange. That's what we have to try and shift. And that's what this week we put out a call for everybody. There's five, um, there's five names we're asking you to call. Prime Minister Scott Morrison, Foreign Minister Maurice Payne, uh, Anthony Albanese, uh, the, the, Dep the opposition leader, Penny Wong, the opposition foreign spokesman, and Barnaby Joyce. And especially when you call Barnaby Joyce and Anthony Albanese, you know they've said this has got to end. Don't hold back on them. Ask them what are they doing, especially Barnaby. What are you doing, Barnaby, to communicate to the British government this has got to end? There's 12 days here to essentially think psychologically in terms of busting him out, right? Intervening so this doesn't happen. And that's something that um, 
is our, is our fellow countrymen, we should take responsibility for doing this because it is ultimately um, going to be the government of Australia that if, it, if they grow a spine here, can make a difference. Yeah. So please, get on the phone. We have a, we'll put a link below this, which is to the press release we put out on Wednesday. The numbers are all in there. Get on the phone and make those calls. We've identified the five Australian politicians, and for good measure, Craig, we've added the phone number of Pretty Patel in the UK and the White House. So you can make two international calls if you like as well and give them a serve. Say, listen, I'm calling from Australia. Tell your Home Secretary, tell your President to let Julian Assange go. Well, the interesting thing, Robbie, is that, you know, Andrew Wilkie and George Christensen have led a parliamentary group. Which is very big now. Well, that's the point. What is, why is it that these politicians that have acknowledged that Julian Assange is innocent of all charges, why don't they come out with this sort of backing, it's not like they're coming out as isolated people. Yep. What is scaring them so much that they won't do it? Because this is the nub of the issue, not just with Julian Assange, but with everything. Well, that's why we called it in our press release, Craig, the ultimate test of the independence of Australia's foreign well, policy. Well, that's where we're not. That's where the problem comes from. We are not independent in foreign policy. Uh, we don't have one, and we haven't had one. As you know, Malcolm Turnbull, uh, no, sorry, Malcolm Fraser, Fraser pointed out, yep. you know, we're basically become a satrapy for the United States and that policy, and that is going to lead us into war. Yeah. What you see with this, uh, you know, de facto war between uh, United States and Russia via Ukraine, you know, where Ukraine is nothing more than a satrapy for the United States. It's the proxy. A proxy war. Well, that's where we're heading with Taiwan, potentially with China as well, and we're going to be the meat and the sandwich here. This is why it's very, very dangerous, and we need to and have... That, yeah, and Assange, is, Assange proves that when our politicians and, and the White House and the British are acting all self-righteous over our intent, as if it can't be questioned, mm. and all the evils on the other side, his very existence as a person proves that is false. That is a lie, and yeah. they have to destroy him for that. Yep, and that's this is what this is what's weakening our country big time. And we've got to, you know, we've got to give us a politician or stand up and do this. Well, hats off to Wilkie, hats off to uh, George Christensen. They've done, they've definitely done the right thing by this. There's a bunch of others, but um, uh, you're right. It's not, it's not good enough. And this is where the Australian people have to change the dynamic so that. Even someone as soulless as Scott Morrison eventually gets on the phone to Joe Biden and says, listen, Joe, your insistence on doing this for no reason, for no moral reason whatsoever is making my life impossible. Stop it. You know, <laughs> right? Robbie, when you go back and look at history, you look at the great leaders in Australian history like Ben Chifflin and John Curtin. These guys didn't suck up no. to the British or to the Americans. Right? They were respectful, right? but they never sucked up. They always stood their ground as far as Australian sovereignty was concerned. I mean, Ben Chifley hated travelling outside of Australia. He only went to the London once, never went to any of the balls or anything like that because he didn't want to be seen as, you know, supporting policies he, in many cases he didn't support. What about Curtin? The thing that probably killed him was when he said the Australian soldiers in North Africa must come home yeah. and Churchill, the great Churchill, the wartime leader, said no, they should go to Burma and Curtin stared him down and said, no, they're not going to Burma, they're coming home. And they went through, they sailed for two weeks through Japanese submarine-infested waters with no protection. 
It could have been the biggest military disaster in Australian history. Yeah, but they had to, and, and I can tell you this, my grandfather was a, a, a young farmer fighting on the Kokoda track, and when those soldiers from North Africa came, they made a world of difference and kept someone like him alive. The reason I exist is because Curtin brought those guys back. But he didn't sleep for two weeks. But the main thing is he stared down the most powerful British leader, right, because Australia's interest came first. And we don't have that in politicians We have a now. false sense of Australia's interest coming first. It comes first after we support the banks. It comes first <laughs> after right. we support free trade. It comes after all of these uh, policies that do not support our sovereignty, Robbie, come first. I know, well, so, maybe, maybe we, we uh, uh, you know, uh, comfort ourselves by saying, oh, it comes first in sport. <laughs> we, we beat the Brits in sport, well, so that's our, that's our fault. Yeah, you're allowed to, that's our within the system, you're allowed to have a few wins, but the, those wins really don't matter yeah. in terms of the long-term general welfare of Australian population, of providing for the common good, developing an economy which is funded by real credit from a national bank, which is a sovereign bank run by our government and our people, for the purposes of the future posterity of our nation. Those principles are all overwhelmingly smashed by this idea of globalism, of idea of ceding our foreign policy issues to the Five Eyes and to the you know, Americans and to the British in particular. This is where you know, real leadership in Australia is, is thoroughly wanting. We need it big time. And, you know... Where it's going to come from right now, well, we thought maybe maybe there was a hint coming from Barnaby, but he seemed to be running a mile and may continue to run a mile because once he gets it, once he's got into this position of power, he's just sort of dissolved. Well, our slogan's not citizens taking responsibility for nothing because when you don't have leadership, then we have to be it. Yeah, that's and right. that's the point. But I'm glad you raised what you just said, Craig, about the, um, the banks coming first because that brings us to our next uh, topic. The bank regulator... That can't count. Now, we're actually going to talk about two regulators here because I, I want to get to this Malcolm Roberts clip. Um, but first, just a quick update on the status of the, the existing campaign we've been on with um, ASIC and the Sterling First issue. Uh, because we're, we're at a point here where you, the, Labor, the two major parties have played their hand. So the, the government's position is, now bear in mind, you know, we'll recap this as quickly as possible. In 2015, a a, a multiply uh, failed financial schemer was allowed to start a new scheme, a rent for life scheme, encouraging elderly people to downsize and pay their rent in advance. And he was allowed to set it up. Um, uh, he, he, he used his son to, to apply for the financial services license, but everyone in Western Australia, ASIC, knew who he was, right? They knew that he was running this scheme. And from the, when it started in 2015, ASIC started receiving complaints not from the victims. They didn't know they were victims yet. They started receiving internal complaints. Their own internal people were saying, hey, this scheme is a problem. And every time ASIC said, no further action, no further action. When the complaints started, there were about four, the scheme had drawn in about a few victims who had paid $400,000. Um, by the time the scheme collapsed in 2019, after even the West Australian Government Department eventually complained, and it still took ASIC six months to act, there were over 130 victims who lost $18 million. They're elderly. The, the chairman of ASIC, uh, uh, Joe Longo, said in the hearing last year, he said he made a big deal about the fact that um, uh, making excuses for ASIC, that he said, well, we didn't, you know, 
you say, why didn't we act? Well, we didn't even get any complaints from the victims because they didn't know they were victims. They didn't know they were in a scheme. All they knew is they had taken a lump sum of money and paid it to this entity and, and they'd signed residential tenancy agreements and they'd paid rent for 40 years or the rest of their life, whichever was, was sooner. And of course, at their age, they're all elderly, it was the rest of their life. And ASIC let them down every step of the way. Right? It's a clear failing of ASIC. The government says no compensation. And on Monday this week, the Labor Party's financial services spokesman, the financial, Shadow Financial Services Minister Stephen Jones, went over to Mandurah in Western Australia and he also said, when he was asked, will you compensate us? Will you commit to paying $18 million to compensate us? He said, no. He said it in a very clipped way, no. And then he said this, he lied. He said, no political party can commit to doing that. That is not true. The act of grace payment, which you can see explained on the government's website, that the finance department can administer is entirely discretionary. The, any government can say, that we are going to make a payment here to these people for whatever reason we want. Right? It doesn't even have to include legal implications for ASIC, except the only reason the government would make that payment, Craig, or any government would make that payment is because they acknowledge that this is ASIC's failings. And it's not $18 million they're trying to save. This, that sort of money means nothing to these governments. They do not want to acknowledge ASIC's failings because they do not want to be responsible for having to clean it up. Mm -hmm. right? They are captive to the banks who are the banks who are telling them you must keep ASIC weak and ineffective as a regulator. So this is abominable. And what we're doing, we put out another release this week, which we'll link to below as well. If you're watching this and you know financial victims, get this video to them. We need to... Um, and actually, I put I made a video that's on our web our YouTube channel here, uh, where I've appealed for this. You can you can play them the short video that we've put up there. Um, every financial victim in Australia, Craig, and there's hundreds of thousands of them, they need to rally behind these victims. They need to rally behind the Sterling victims because if they won't compensate these victims, who are elderly, who are frail, who are sick, and who are dying and who've all faced eviction and will be made homeless on the streets, if they won't compensate these victims in these circumstances, they're not going to compensate anybody. Yeah. There's hundreds of thousands of you out there and they're not going to compensate anybody. On the other hand, if we can shame them into compensating these victims, that sets a precedent that this whole mess of financial victims can be finally be cleaned up. And Craig, I was talking to um, our closest legal advisor this week, who's a very, very experienced lawyer, you know, um, been practicing for decades, and he confirmed to me, there's never been a time, outside of the financial calamities that happened around depressions, like in the 1890s and the 1930s, there has never been a time in Australian history when you have had this massive carnage of financial victims out there, literally hundreds of thousands of them, who, who um, uh, are just left to uh, wither and die. Well, it was recognised during the Royal Commission. Justice Haynes came out with the idea of yeah. uh, you know, compensating a lot more of the financial victims of the bank. So it's, not a, it's, it's, it's an open... They know it's an issue that must be addressed, but they don't want to. Well, that's the point, Robbie. And listen, the government can pick money out of any... You know, it doesn't just have to be an act of grace payment. It, can become, it come from many different places. I yes. mean, you can just see what's taken place in Ukraine... You know, the government's up to $70 million here, $50 million for Bushmasters. Where does this money come from? Yeah. Right, it just comes out of thin air, seemingly. You know, the government has the power to be able to create or direct the, the money to be paid in certain ways as it is politically expedient. 
That's all it is. They don't want to compensate the victims because that means admitting liability to their regulators are ineffective. They're being kept weak by the banks, which are, of course, uh, in the parties, the Liberal and the Labor Party, are both captive to the big four banks in this country. Until that's broken, right, the regulators aren't... It's not like the regulators don't have the, the regulation and the laws. They have plenty of laws. They've got plenty of them. <laughs> that's right? what Hayden said as they well. They will be used against anyone that opposes the banks, yep. right? But they'll be soft on... The idea well, remember, of remember, anyone, this is the WA branch of ASIC is the one that failed these these victims. I, I want yeah. In two thousand and five, you and stunning. I got letters. Craig Ishwood and I, Robbie Bowie, got letters from the WA branch of ASIC on the basis that we had put out a newspaper with the headline "The Mother of All Bubbles" and we had warned people about these things called derivatives, which we said would blow up the global financial system. Which three years later they did. But because a person in Western Australia took it to his financial advisor and said, am I exposed to these derivatives? The financial advisor referred it to ASIC and ASIC sent us a warning letter warning us that we could be fined for... Um, giving financial advice. Without a licence. Without a licence. Now, what we were talking about was a, another open secret about the, exp yeah. you know, the expansion of the global derivatives bubble, which was set to burst, which it did three years later. And We were just exposing it. We were on the front page of our New Citizen newspaper back then. Look how proactive they were to protect the system <laughs> yes. instead of the consumers. And anyway, they withdrew that letter and they said, OK, it's fine. We understand it was political comment because they, I, I think they might have had a second idea about, oh, we don't want to really open this can of no. worms up because, you know, this is, this is uh, going to lead to places that we don't want but to go. That, but it is one of the reasons why we're more judgmental on this because we, we saw then how quickly and proactively ASIC could act if they wanted to. Yeah. And in this case, for these victims, they were completely negligent, right? All right, now, so that's ASIC. We've um, spread the word. We need to get every financial victim in Australia to rally behind these sterling victims and use them as the, as the, uh, the, the flag carriers for a total clean up of the system here. Let's now get on to our other favourite regulator, which you, we used to bash regularly before the ASIC thing came along, APRA, Australian Prudential Regulation Authority. Um, because we want to play, in the time we've got left, we're going to play a rather lengthy clip, or we'll break it up a bit, um, uh, from an excellent hearing exchange happened in the Senate estimates uh, a few nights ago. So the basis of this is, Craig, um, APRA's job among, it doesn't do much, that much, frankly, but um, one of its jobs is it's in charge of keeping an accurate count of all the bank branches in Australia. And as you know... This has become a big issue mm. because there's carnage out there. The banks are aggressively shutting their branches and they're abandoning communities in doing so. And they've got all sorts of excuses. And you're going to see the excuses repeated um, by the chairman of, of uh, APRA here, Wayne Byers. Um, uh, and uh, the problem is it just leaves these communities to wither and die. If you don't have financial services, um, then you start losing lots of other things as well. Now, uh, National Australia Bank is one, it's the one we know of, there may be others doing this, but we've, we've discovered that National Australia Bank is shifting to, in some areas, digital only branches. And you'll, I don't want to preempt this too much because you'll hear a description um, of what that is. But it comes down to, as a definition of, of a bank branch that's in APRA's literature, and a bank branch by definition must take and receive cash. 
like, and, 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 and dispense cash. It must do that. When it's a digital-only branch, it shouldn't be counted as a branch because it, it pads out the numbers and it's a lie. It's not really a branch, right? Um, because and APRA is allowing the banks to cover up its... Well, digital-only branches actually restrict a certain proportion of the population from doing banking. Yes. Because not everyone's involved in the digital... No, exactly, exactly. Outputs. So let's watch Senator Malcolm Roberts, One Nation Senator Malcolm Roberts, in Senate estimates of the Senate Economics Committee, and he's got APRA Chairman Wayne Byers, and he starts asking a series of questions about this. We're going to play the whole thing because I want you to both, I want you to see the dynamic. I want you to see um, Malcolm Roberts' sincerity. And, and when Malcolm Roberts gets, you know, he's like a dog with a bone with this stuff when he gets his teeth into it. He's very good. And, and um, Byers, by definition, doesn't care anywhere near as much as, as Roberts about this issue. So what's this first part of it? Thank you. Thank you, Thank you Senator Bragg. Senator Roberts. Thank you, Chair. Thank you all for attending today. The National Australia Bank is making a number of branches cashless and have confirmed by email they now have nine small format cashless branches across New South Wales, Queensland and Victoria. The Senate rejected the Liberal Nationals cash ban bill and sent a very clear message that cash should remain available. Cash is legal tender. So on what basis are APRA allowing a situation where the Queen's currency is not legal tender inside a bank branch? So, Senator, I don't think we are allowing or not allowing any such thing. Um, we don't, uh, don't have any role or responsibility in that area. The banks increasingly are responding to the way in which the majority of their customers are choosing to transact, and for the majority of their customers uh, it's digital. Um, and so we are seeing a shift away from the traditional bank branch, as you say, but um, to, to what I'd call various forms of servicing their customers and these particular, um, I've forgotten what you called them, but the cashless branch, I think was the phrase. Small uh, format cashless Small branch. format, yeah. Uh, just another way in which they can hopefully uh, continue to cost effectively service their customers. It's not, uh, as you say, it's a small number, uh, but it doesn't imply anything about... Um, APRA allowing people not to accept legal tender. That's not a correct uh, characterisation of it. It wasn't quite the question, but that's fine. APRA's definition of a bank branch includes the requirement to take and issue cash and change. Will you be advising NAB to stop describing cashless offices as bank branches? It's a clear misrepresentation of the services and offer, isn't it? Well, that's, um, that definition applies to a reporting standard uh, that we use to collect annual data on the points of presence. Uh, and so I've, I have no reason to think that for the purpose of that reporting standard, uh, the National Australia Bank is in any way misreporting. Um, uh, but that's, that, um, that definition doesn't apply more broadly to um, the way in which banks talk about their services. It's purely focused on a reporting standard for APRA. Well, I've got a glossary here from APRA's website, mm -hmm. um, and it says, branches are face-to-face -face points of presence that meet the following minimum criteria. First of all, they accept cash and other deposits, including business deposits, and provide change, and then they list another four. Yes, and, and for the purposes of reporting to us and for the purposes of reporting 
in our points of presence collection, that is the way in which uh, branches are to be reported. So I also have here from APRA, authorised deposit taking institutions, points of presence statistics. Yes. APRA have maintained a database of authorised deposit taking institutions, points of reference, of points of presence, shorthand the database. This database makes a clear dif differentiation between bank branches and bank offices, the latter being described as other face-to-face. -face. So we've got a column here for branch, we've got a, a, a list and a location, branch, whether it's a branch, whether it's other face-to-face -face or an ATM. So this database makes a clear difference between differentiation between bank branches and bank offices, the latter being described as other face-to-face, -face, as I just said. Yes. Will you ensure all branches that do not accept and issue cash are downgraded to other rather than continuing to show as a bank branch? Well, I think that's where they should be reported already, but if, if they're not, then we would need to make sure that they were. Okay, thank you. The Quill Awards for Excellence in Victorian Journalism at the Melbourne Press Club recently awarded journalist Dale Webster a regional Quill Award for her investigation of the true extent of bank branch closures in Australia. The article was awarded for, and I quote, busting layer upon layer of myths being perpetuated by the banking sector and blew the whistle on errors in official data that have been published by the government unchecked for decades, end of quote. So that's your database that they're talking about, Mr. Byers. It's, isn't it? How, how good is your database? Uh, well, I think the, data, the database is fine. The database uh, is the facts that have been reported. Um, and I have no reason to think that there's uh, problems with the underlying data. So we've just, ex just discussed that something is, a, a branch is labelled as a branch even if it doesn't have face-to-face -face operation? Well, as I said before, our definition says a branch should have, and you had the definition there, it should yes. have cash, and then there was other face-to-face. -face. Yep. So that is the definition, and uh, that should so the be the way in which wrong. that is, well, I'm not sure it is, but we can go away and have another look at that issue Could you? you. Could you get back to us, please? Happy to do so. Thank you. All right, so Craig, um, I want to, they're talking about the digital only branches there, but I want to give you some other examples that he cited this journalist, Dale Webster. Dale Webster is a former Herald and Weekly Times journalist who's gone off and become independent. She's won awards for this, and Malcolm's going to cite that. Um, uh, but this is the, there's a bigger problem than just the digital only branches, right? Most of the APRA database errors relate to the incorrect classification of service levels provided to communities like the digital only ones, but there are other areas as well. APRA has been listing sites that do not provide full branching banking services, most importantly the, the ability for customers to withdraw and deposit cash, including business deposits, and provide change as branches. This is a critical issue in regional areas in particular because there's a lot of cash sloshing around in the regional areas, Craig. Mm -hmm. you, digital technology is not reliable. People have to use cash and they've got nowhere safe to store it when, they, when their branch shuts down. Um, some of the errors are, get, just get ridiculous, like Westpac listing the offices of mortgage brokers as bank branches. Yeah. There are mortgage, there's tens of thousands of mortgage brokers around Australia. They operate out of the boot of their cars, right? They're not bank branches. 
Um, that's Westpac does that. Rabobank offices are listed as bank branches, but there's no retail side of a Rabobank office. Elders, stock and station agents that were agents for the rural bank, but have never provided cash services, are listed as bank branches. Right? And, and, and it just disguises what's actually the, the level of carnage that's happening out there. Um, these sites should have been classified as other and not included in the any bank branch statistics. And the, key, the most important thing from uh, Dale Webster's work, APRA has admitted that it doesn't check the information provided by the banks before publishing it. So it just takes the bank's word for this. And this is why Malcolm Roberts is asking these questions. So let's look at the second clip here. So I would like to ask about an issue raised in Dale Webster's article, and I'll quote, 92 country towns across 38 federal electorates have lost all their banks and agencies, that's Australia Post, news agents, nothing that doubles as a bank, banking service provider. And now those towns have no banking services. The number of branches in rural and regional areas has fallen over the last 20 years from a high of 2,802 branches in 1,126 towns down to the current 1,075 branches in 387 towns. That's a 62% cut. Uh, yes, I'll, I'll agree with your maths. Has APRA made any effort to stem the carnage in rural banking? If not, why not? So I think we have... Um, so I absolutely agree with the concern that you have, Senator. Um, it's a trend that's been going for some time. Um, I'll see if my colleague, uh, uh, Mr Lonsdale, who's on the line, wants to jump in with anything. But we have been... We don't have a role to play in saying where banks have branches and where they don't have branches, but we understand entirely the problem that's existing. As I said, it's a trend within society that finance is going digital and bank branches are not profitable. So we have been working with the other arms of government on thinking about solutions to this debanking problem. Uh, but it's not something that we'll be able to solve on our own. But so it's not, not part of APRA's charter, but, but who, who else is, could well, it it's, be? Well, it's a government problem. I don't know whether, John, you want to add anything uh, to that? Uh, thanks, Chair. So thanks, Senator, for your question. The thing that I would add is, uh, yes, branches have declined in, in number, and that's not just the case in regional areas, but it's, it's the case in other areas in the country as well. But what our data is not picking up that I think is interesting is that there have been other ways, particularly in recent years, that customers have been accessing the financial system more electronically. And I take the point that uh, for some people in regional areas, uh, having a branch there is very, very important, so it doesn't undermine that, but there are other avenues as well. So that's something to think through. Minister, what do you think about the 62% the, um, reduction in bank branches? Uh, Senator Robert, this is something that we receive correspondence about uh, on a re regular basis, um, and I know it's something that's come up with some of my regional rural colleagues as well. Um, um, the government hasn't got a specific policy that would compel banks to open up in regional rural areas. Uh, and we understand that they are very much the private sector, although they do operate under a social contract. Um, it's something that I think in the next term of parliament I'd be happy to talk to you further about and, and discuss what solutions you might consider appropriate. All right. Now, Craig, 
Hume's asked a question there, which we have an answer for. Yep. But I have to say this. Um, I really loved when Malcolm Roberts turned to her because she is the government. She represents the government, right? And he put her on the spot as well. And she was clearly squirming because I don't think in the cold light of day, she's, she actually really means to say to Malcolm Roberts, oh, I'm interested in your suggestion. Because we have, well, I, actually, I can say this. One Nation support the policy that we're about to name is our suggestion. What is a solution? The postal bank, <laughs> right? Look, look, look what's going on here, Robbie. You've got postal branches, you know, a substantial number of, not a substantial, but an enormous number of postal branches all around the country in local communities. Turn the Australia Post into a postal bank, you've solved the problem. Yep. Right, okay, fine. The banks don't want to put branches in unprofitable areas. Fine, business model. Protect their profits, fine. But don't complain when the government yep. steps in yep. and says, no, we're going to protect the common good here. We're going to provide for the benefit of, of, you know, of the economy providing these financial services like banking. Don't complain. APRA's got the power to do this, right? The government, the Reserve Bank's got the power to direct yep. banks to have certain types of activities, but they're not being used because the banks are... Well, okay, no, that's, that's beautiful, but let, let's play. <laughs> I, want to, I want you to, what you just said is true, but I want to play the last clip now. Um, this, is the, this is the end of it, and it's, it gets bizarre. Malcolm Roberts is going to describe how these digital branch, branches work. But Wayne Byers says in this last clip that uh, we don't have the power, right, or we can't do that. Um, but do, do you remember, remember what Hume said, though, in her answer? She admits there's a social contract. Yeah. You know what a social contract means? Yes, banks. We say everybody knows if you ever get in trouble, we're going to save your butts. Therefore, there must be a trade-off for that. We're going to tell you where you can put your bank that that you have to have have a minimum standard. But they don't want to do that because, of course, they serve the banks. And, and just to remember, Robbie, if if there were a problem, which there's not, Apple could go to the government and say, "Look, we need these powers to be yep. able to provide this yep. extend this service contract to these areas because we just don't have it." And if the government is on behalf, acting on behalf of the people per se, that would happen in a heartbeat. I'll, I'll, and if they did set up the postal banks, or if every post office became a bank, those banks would be tripping over themselves to get back out to regional Australia because they know they will lose enormous numbers of oh, customers yeah, to those yeah, banks. That's right. Right? To, to a postal bank. All right, just what's the last clip? Um, this comes from the NAB correspondence uh, we have here. In this description of these new cashless offices, they say, quote, in these branches, customers will benefit from more meetings, spaces with video conferencing facilities and a digital bar. And I don't know what a digital bar is. So we can provide more guidance on the ways to do everyday banking, end of quote. Does the definition of a bank branch include the need to have on hand suitably qualified staff able to exercise their duty as a responsible banker? Uh, well, again, the only definition of a branch that we have is the one for reporting purposes, and the definition is the one that you quoted uh, before, Senator. I'm, I'm, I'm sure you had that definition right. So the definition doesn't, is not, doesn't have that level of specificity in it. It has another four uh, criteria in addition to the ability to accept cash and other deposits. Yeah. Facilitate the keeping of accounts for customer access, including the provision of account balances. Open and close accounts can facilitate or arrange the assessment of the credit risk of existing and potential customers and offer additional services in the one establishment such as financial service, services, business banking and specialist lending. So we're skirting with the banking code of practice 
So this is a serious question. Does a concierge directing customers to a computer screen to talk to a bank employee in a remote or international location satisfy your definition of diligence? Just how dumbed down are we going to let the bank branches get? Uh, well, I'm not, uh, I'm not sure that fits with our definition or it fits with the intent of our definition. The intent of the definition is to, to describe locations where you can, at a branch, do those things you talked about. Transact cash, open and close accounts, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so the fact that there are other types of operations in addition to branches that are there, uh, I don't see why we would need to uh, have a problem or an issue with those. This goes to the customer service of the banks. Yes. And servicing rural Australia. Absolutely. And there are challenges there. Um, and banks are always trying to work out how to do that in a way that is cost effective, a way they can service the community in a way that's cost effective. Well, are you saying, it sounds like it to me, but I'll just check with you, are you saying that a bank office having no suitably qualified banking staff able, able to exercise their duty as a responsible banker in person is still a branch nonetheless? This is a requirement of the Banking Code of Practice. Is that document just a complete joke? No, uh, no. I'm just wary of commenting on a on a, a code of practice that we don't administer or enforce. Well, what's your view on it? Um, sorry, could you re repeat what's, that question then? What's my view on what? Sorry. On, on, it sounds like you're saying that a bank officer, a bank office having no suitably qualified banking staff able to exercise their duty as a responsible banker in person is still a branch, nonetheless. Well, for the purposes of the definition, it's still defined as a branch, um, but, but clearly not having qualified staff in your operations is not diligent operations. I mean, that, that's a simple business practice. So it, does APRA need to get closer to... Is, is APRA too close to the banks? Do you need to get further away from them? What, what's, what's no, um, so these things, right, as you've pointed out, these things are uh, part of the banking code of practice, and the banking code of practice uh, is overseen by ASIC. And Craig, just the last comment I wanted to make. He said, this is a bigger story, but I just wanted to highlight it. Um, you know, Malcolm Roberts talks about the banking code of practice, and it's clearly they're not diligent. They're not being diligent in following that. And um, what does Boaz say? He says, oh, we don't, we don't administer or enforce that code of practice. Guess what? Nobody no does. does it's not enforceable. What we have in Australia is self-regulation and it's an ever-living joke. Anyway, um, any final words? Robbie, regulation means regulation. And, you know, <laughs> right. we had discussions at one point uh, with some of the you know, financial heads. You went up to Canberra and sat down with uh, Daisaka Kotagawa, who yep. was you know, very responsible for winding back uh, derivatives in the Ministry of Finance in Japan. Right, and what was absolutely clear then was that there's no intention of trying to control the banks or bring them under control, no. none whatsoever. And that's where the political aspect of all of this comes into play. So, I mean, when, when, when APRA and these guys say they don't have the powers, that's crap, it's all political and requires people getting involved. We get involved in understanding what's going on with Sterling first and make your views known to your members of parliament and so forth because the more people that do that, the more we shine a you know, strong light on and the And get involved in the campaign for a postal bank. The postal bank, I can tell 
viewers now, the postal bank is a policy we can achieve. We don't have to win government by achieving it, to achieve it, right? We can achieve this. This is, this is a growing idea. We can, and, and once you do it, you will start to ch take big chunks off the powers of the banks in Australia, and then we can open the door to cleaning up the system, etc. Yeah. Anyway, Craig, we've run out of time. Um, thanks very much for joining thanks. us on the show. Yeah, thanks, Robert. Thanks to the viewers for tuning in. Make those calls for Julian Assange. Support the Sterling First Victims and support the fight for a postal bank. Tune in next week for more of the Citizens Report. Authorised by Robert Bowick, Citizens Party, Melbourne.